Well, good morning. We are looking at some of the Psalms of David. We began looking at Psalm 1 and 2. Even though there's no superscription, we're not sure who wrote it. It's the introduction to all the Psalter, and so many of David's Psalms flow out of those first two Psalms. And now we're in some of the Messianic Psalms of David. So you could call Psalm 22, 22, 23, 24, those Messianic Psalms. You could call Psalm 22 the Psalm of the Good Shepherd. And the Psalm of the Good Shepherd is about those who are spiritually suffering, those who are emotionally suffering, those who are physically suffering, and how the, how the Messiah is the answer to all those kinds of suffering. Last week, Wade uh, preached on Psalm 23. We could call that the Psalm of the Great Messiah. And in the Great Messiah, he is the one who provides for us, he directs us, and he protects us. And so by the time you get through those psalms, some of the messianic psalms, you go, wow, this is incredible. I, I, would love to, I, I would love to get to know this Messiah. And then Psalm 24, I would call it the Psalm of the Chief Shepherd, answers this very important question that everybody who's ever lived needs to have it answered. And the question is this, what must I do in order to enter into the very presence of God? I mentioned a, a month or so ago, one of my closest friends, he was my first pastor, he's been my mentor for years and years, Don Tab. He loves to fish, and he was in a terrible fishing accident down at the mouth of the Mississippi River. He was in a 28-foot boat with three people, and the boat totally got hit by a rogue wave, flipped over, and he lost his life. Just last week, you read about the duck boat incident where 17 people lost their lives. 17 of 31 people lost their lives. And you would think if they're going in into God's presence and, and the Lord were to ask, why should I let you into my presence? What would they answer? What would you say if today was your day and then somebody were to ask you, well, why should God let you into his, his very presence? How would you answer uh, that? Well, Psalm 24 has an answer for that very question. It actually is an answer, and the answer is in three parts. Quick overview of the three parts we're going to look at. The first part, really, David is going to show us that in order to enter into the presence of God, externals are absolutely, totally eliminated. God is not owned by any class or sect or race there is a type of person who will be able to stand in the presence of God, but he is first going to take away all human and worldly and social and religious effort uh, that people want to hang on to, and he is going to absolutely, totally liquidate it and eliminate it, externals eliminated. The second part of this really shows in verses 3 to 6, he's going to underscore that entering into the presence of God has nothing to do with externals. It does have everything to do, though, with internals. And we'll look at that. And then it ends, verses 7 to end, to 10. Uh, David then will point us to the very one, the only one, who can pave a way for us to enter into the presence of God. Thus, they call this a messianic psalm. It points to the Messiah. Let's look at the first two introductory verses. It's a propositional statement that David will make. Very few people would ever argue with it, and it has some wonderful conclusions that how these externals are eliminated. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon uh, the rivers. In other words, every living thing is born out of the creativity of God. Um, Everything is subject to his will. Everyone must answer to this one. Uh, There's one God. He has created the ecosystem. He has created every living thing within the system. Everything exists under the benevolence of God. He is a right God, a loving God, a just God. He is eternal. He's sovereign. He's the creator. He's the landlord. He's infinitely holy, infinitely righteous. And we, every single person, would be part of the sheep of his pastures. Therefore, in effect, what he is saying is this. Since he has made every single one, Acts, you can write in your notes, Acts 17. Acts 17, 24 to 25 says the exact same thing, that God made the world and everything in it. He himself gives to all mankind, all mankind, life and breath and everything. So probably what, what, you, what you could say uh, is that there is not a God of the Arabs. There's not a God of the Jews. There's not a God of the Thai or a God of the native Indians. He has made everything, everybody. There is one, one God, and we are the creatures of his pastures. There are some implications here. I think these first two verses remind us that we are stewards in this world, and we are not owners in this world. God owns everything. God owns everything that you and I possess. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he also owns your car. He owns your house. He owns your computer. And if he doesn't want you to have something that you think you possess, you had better uh, get rid of it. And that mentality of understanding that God is the owner, he owns it all, the mentality of understanding that we're just merely stewards of these things brings out in us a spirit of humility, which is pleasing in the sight of God, rather than uh, a spirit of pride, which thinks it controls, it owns, it dominates, and it controls, and pride goes before destruction. John the Baptist put it this way, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. This is one reason why I think giving uh, for a Christian should come extremely easily, easily because it, it validates the fact that you understand this very base principle. And I think, on the other hand, if you struggle with giving, it's probably an indicator that you really haven't come to grips with this very basic principle that God owns everything and we're merely stewards of it. Uh, I, I like to keep up occasionally with what's going on with the Cubs, and I was so interested in this, this thing with Cole Hamels. You know, just last week they got Cole Hamels. He pitched last Wednesday. He pitches again tomorrow. And I, I knew that he was a very committed Christian. He and his wife, very committed Christians from the Texas Rangers. And um, Ben was super excited about him coming just knowing his testimony. And so I got, on, got online and did a Google search on Cole Hamels, read about him, and, and I was shocked. Uh, he was approached, he, was appro- he and his wife were approached uh, to give to this thing called the Camp Barnabas. Camp Barnabas is an organization 
that is a camp for special needs kids, uh, kids with chronic illnesses. And so they decided, you know, it's not theirs, it's God's. And they said, quote unquote, God has given us plenty. They had just finished building, well, within the last couple of years or so, uh, a $9 million home in Branson, Missouri, uh, 31,000 square feet, 9 million on 104 acres. And they decided, let's just give this to the camp. And uh, they just donated the whole thing to the camp. The only, ra- the only way they would even consider that is understanding that God's the owner of everything. They, they don't control it. They don't possess it. It's just theirs. It's, it's the Lord's to use however he wants to use it. So, um, I, so as believers, we need to acknowledge that um, we are managers. We're not possessors. We're stewards. We're not owners. We're distributors. We're not controllers of things. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter into the presence of God? What I do know is that it's not going to come from my position or our heritage or nationality or religious efforts. Uh, nothing like that will ever help me get into the presence of God. So what will it take? Number two tells us, the second part, verses three to six, tell us it's not externals, it's something that happens internally. The internals are here underscored. And he says in verse 3, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And he answers that in verse 4, and notice there are three things. The one who's going to stand in the presence of the Lord, number one, he who has clean hands. Number two, he who has a pure heart. Number three, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the person who is going to be declared uh, that has blessing versus guilty. So look at the qualities. Let's look at these three qualities of the person that's qualified to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, again, realize this is a messianic psalm, so we're getting to the climax in verses 7, 8, 9, 10. So just file that away. We've got to get to 7, 8, 9, 10. Okay? Um, let's look at the qualities of this person. Who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? Number one, he who has clean hands. I'll tell you what, if my, if my hands are, are clenched up in hate and in anger and in revenge, uh, th- those are dirty hands. Those are not clean hands. Or if my hands are, are, are grasping and clasping and clinging and refusing to share with those in need, those aren't clean hands. Th- those are dirty hands. If my hands are the hands that, that will fondle another man's wife, those are not clean hands. Those are dirty hands. And if my hands uh, point in gossip and in talk, or if my hands cup the ear to hear the slander and the gossip of others, those hands are not clean. Those hands are dirty. So in other words, he's saying, I don't care how religious we are on the outside. We can be baptized, confirmed, sprinkled. We can have measured uh, uh, membership ad nauseum. I'm dirty before God. The third thing, well, 
who then can ascend to the hill of the Lord, who will be able to stand in his holy place. Those with a pure heart. It's not just the hands, it's the heart. Look, I can go through all kind of feasting and fasting and diet codes and baptism and confirmation. I can go through all the external stuff on the outside of the cup. But if there has not been an internal change of the heart, if there has not been conversion, a coming to God with an impoverished spirit as a spiritual pauper hungering for his righteousness, I'll never be able to enter into his presence. There are a lot of people who come to God sort of, they're feeling like they're short of change, wondering what to do. They almost picture their relationship with God like scales. You know, and if the good stuff sort of outweighs the bad stuff, you know, that's okay, but if the bad stuff is outweighing the good stuff, they're feeling, oh, I'm short of change. I've got to do a little bit more. No, it has nothing to do with being short of change. God requires an impoverished spirit. And this kind of impoverished spirit uh, will never lift itself up to an idol. Thirdly, who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? It says, if a person does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, that person can enter the presence of God. In other words, a truthful, holy, righteous tongue. You know what this passage is doing in essence? This passage is answering the, the, the uh, question, how is a person saved? How can they enter the presence of God? In the Old Testament, how can a person be saved in the Old Testament? That's what this passage is answering. Now, what the psalm will tell us is it's the same answer that how can a person be saved in the New Testament? How can a person be saved in the New Testament? Well, if you're saved by faith in the grace of God, coming to Jesus with an impoverished spirit, coming to his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you, you are saved. And that's exactly like salvation in the Old Testament. By turning from your righteousness, by repenting, by trusting God, coming to him with an impoverished spirit, um, resting and relying totally on his mercies. It's the same as the New Testament. The difference is this. The difference is the body of faith that you put your trust in is so much more fully developed in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. For example, when, when, Adam, when Adam came to God trusting in the shed blood of a lamb, uh, he tr was trusting God to save him. Now, you and I understand from our perspective, from the New Testament perspective, that the blood that the Lamb shed was the virgin-born Son of God who was crucified and buried and rose again from the dead. Those in the Old Testament were saved on credit, which came due at the cross. And those who are saved um, in the New Testament, like you and me, are saved in retrospect to what God did 2,000 years ago. So the bottom line is, in the Old Testament, they were saved by coming to God with empty hands, admitting their need, coming to God, trusting in his grace, and anticipating God to save them. This is exactly how Rahab was saved in the book of Joshua. She was saved in the very same way, by faith, just like Cornelius was, 
in Acts chapter 12. That's why verse 6 couldn't say it any clearer. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The person with this kind of heart who repents, who turns in faith to the one true God and bows before the Son of God, this kind of repentance and turning in faith will eventually reveal itself in the fruit of this changed life. Or we might say from a New, New Testament perspective, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Faith and grace and grace alone. But genuine faith is never really alone. Because if a person's heart is transformed, if they become a new creature, then things will, will begin, that's the process of sanctification, things will begin to look different in their lives. Such is the generation who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Folks, this is no different. What, what is being said now in this Messianic Psalm, Psalm 24, is no different at all from what Isaiah said, one of the major prophets. It's no different at all from what Micah said, uh, one of the minor prophets. It's no different at all from what John the Baptist said. You remember John the Baptist when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the epitome of religiosity. I mean, they came with all the externals. I mean, they gave tons. They rang the silver bells with all their money. They, they, they came with all the externals. They did all the feasts, all the fasts. They did all that stuff, and they, they came. And you know what John the Baptist said? You're a brood of vipers. You are the heritage of Satan. And he called them, you bring forth fruit in keeping your, with your repentance. And what he said was, you, you understand about baptism, but you must understand that baptizing the body is not the same as baptizing the heart. Then he says, don't say that we're children of Abraham. God can raise up from the stones the children of Abraham. So what John the Baptist was doing was uncovering this extremely fundamental doctrine that had been lost for centuries. That is, a person's external righteousness is absolutely useless. I know you might be saying, but Jeff, that's the Old Testament. You're quoting Old Testament Psalms, you're, you're quoting from Old Testament major prophets, Old Testament minor prophets, you're even quoting from John the Baptist, who was technically the last of the Old Testament prophets. Well, then what about Jesus? Jesus said, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside might be clean also. Now, some of those of you who are pretty astute theologically, you're going to challenge me and you're going to say, yeah, but Jeff, technically, you might be an ultra-dispensationalist and you might say, but, but really the church wasn't even formed yet. The church wasn't even formed until Acts chapter 2. So what do you say about that, Jeff? I would say Paul says the same thing too. Paul says in Romans 2, uh, 28, he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. He says it's a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, 
Or he would say in Romans chapter 9, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, but from Isaac, the child of faith. That's where your descendants will be named. Look, this is so, Psalm 24, one of the most incredible messianic psalms there is, is so powerful, not only in David's day, not only in Isaiah's day, not only in Micah's day, not only in John the Baptist's day, not only in Jesus' day, not only in Paul's day, but also in our day. How many of you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior? It is only through him. We're going to see this in the last four verses. That's the only way our hands become pure, our hearts become pure, our tongues become pure. And what's going to happen when you make that incredible discovery? All of a sudden you're going to realize, you know what? All my religion, all those good things that I ever tried to do, they are just, you know, trying to outweigh the good with the bad. They are filthy rags. You know what Paul called that, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. He called that the stumbling block of the cross. That there is nothing you can do to get into the presence of God. Nothing. All your efforts, all your thoughts about paying a little extra Nothing you can do. And I know what you're doing. I know you're sitting there, and I know what you're thinking, but Jeff, I, I, I was born in a Christian family. My parents were Christians. I was raised in a Christian home. I was even sprinkled as a baby. I was sprinkled as a baby. I was confirmed when I was 12. I was baptized when I was 17. I went to youth group, went to church, you know, all these things. I married under the sacrament of the cross. I genuflected. I bowed before the cross. Um, but the question is, have you been born again? Have you come to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and have you received him? And the only way you will come to him and the only way you will receive him is if, is if God has called you and brought you and wooed you with his spirit. And then you come to him with a broken heart and you bow your heart to God. No human apart from God will ever bow their heart to God. The distance between a person's knees and the ground is the, is the width of the Grand Canyon. There is no way a person will come unless God calls him and brings him. And then that person, by faith, as a gift, he gets a new heart. He becomes a new creation. And as that new creation, then all of a sudden... You begin to change, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And your hands slowly, day after day, become a little more pure, a little cleaner. The heart becomes a little purer. The tongue becomes a little more accurate, a little more uh, truthful, so to speak. And so Paul ends up saying, all that stuff you tried to do, working your way, getting into the presence of God, he says they're all, uh, he says, for, for example, in Philippians 3.8, he call, he's sort of vivid, might not use it in church, but he calls it dung. Or Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 6, called, he says all that stuff is, is like filthy rags, like a menstrual cloth. Are you offended by that? Well, that's good because that's exactly how you should feel. You should feel offended by that. 
remember I said this text is going to do three things. The first thing this text is going to do, it's going to absolutely eliminate all the external religions by which we can seek God. It will eliminate any cultic idea that my race, that my class, that my sect, that my effort can do anything to work my way into the presence of God. Folks, the arms of God are only open to an impoverished, broken spirit just like it was for Rahab the harlot or Cornelius the centurion or Peter the fisherman. The second thing this text will do is underscore its internals that make the difference. Clean hands, pure heart, and a true tongue and faithful holy tongue. Those are the ones who can enter into the presence of God. And this is what drives us to the concluding point. Well, if that's what it takes, I'm hopeless because my hands are not clean. My tongue certainly hasn't always spoken the truth. My soul isn't pure. And it, dry, it is meant to drive us to that point where we understand that the standard of God to get into his presence is absolute perfection. And if you are here without Christ and you think you've done those three things, please stand that we might worship you. There's only one person ever who's done it. That's what this psalm is all about. That's why they call it a messianic psalm. It drives us to Jesus, which is the third thing in verses 7 to 10 that it does. It is the essence of the gospel that Jesus is the answer. It uses a little different lingo than we would use today. The lingo back then was this. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So this verse answers the challenge of verse 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So David is prophetically saying that the gates of celestial glory will go, will go up. So in an ancient city, what happened is the gates would swing on hinges in and out to allow people to go in and out of a city. But when a conquering king conquered a city, they would not just swing the, the gates open. The gates would actually come off of the hinges, up and off the hinges, so that the king, along with his hosts, along with his armies, would have total access to the, to the city. They would have total access to go in and to go out, and that door would never, ever be shut on that king. So heaven's gates are opened and up to the Messiah, that the king of glory may come in. Notice that this Messiah is not just a man. He's not an angel. He is the monarch of the heavenly glory. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. This is the guy who will put an end to all religion, all politics, all, all philosophy. He is the Messiah, the King. He is the word of God come, made flesh. He is the righteousness of God. Who is then this King of glory? It sounds exactly like what John said uh, back, back in, in the Gospels. Where is he 
that we might come and worship him. This is the one, this is the only one who will ever get you into the presence of God. Well, is he a Jew? Is he an Arab? You know, is he an American Indian? You know, who exactly is he? Is he from New York? Is he from Chicago? Uh, is he, you know, where is he from? Uh, no, no, this verse tells us he's not just a man. This person is God himself. Now, if I had the cue up for the Messiah again, I'd start playing the Messiah again because Handel uses this as well, just like he did uh, the last time in Psalm 2. Who is this king of glory? Well, he's Yahweh. He is I am. The I am, strong and mighty. The I am, who is mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up. O ancient doors, that this king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? It's Yahweh of Sabaoth. It is the Lord. It's the I am of the armies of God. He is the king of glory. So the Bible over and over repeats itself, intensifying it dramatically. And David is saying, who can go into the presence of God? Well, it's the Messiah who is I am. He says that two different times. He is the king of glory. He says that two times. And then in verse 10, he gives the highest title of deity. He is the I am of Sabaoth, of all the angelic realm, all of the hosts of God. He's the commander of the armies of God. This is the one general who can come with his hosts into the very presence of God and the gates will be removed. Folks, this is why. This is why. In Micah chapter 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is why the angel of the Lord announced to the shepherds, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord Yahweh. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God. This is why when you get to a passage, say, like in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, he knocks everything down, but there's only one thing remaining standing in the temple, and that is Jesus himself. That's why in Matthew 12, verse 6, uh, Jesus said, there's some, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus. Jesus is deity, and the four Gospels establish that the Son of Man is God. That's the only one who can enter into the very presence of God. He is the Lord of Sabaoth. He is the one who can provide the way for the armies of God to enter in with him. Jesus is deity. That's why Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Well, if he is God... Let's be a little skeptical. If he is God, can he raise people from the dead? 
Well, let's see. He said, Tabitha, arise. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, can he do miracles over nature? I'd love for you to ask some of the disciples his command over the winds and the waves. Well, can he walk on water? Just ask Peter. Can he even ask an individual to walk on water? Can he cause fish to jump out of the ocean and into a net? Can he throw an unbaited hook into the water and have a fish bite on it? Can this individual die by crucifixion, get pierced by a lance, pronounced dead by a professional Roman executioner? Can he get bound in grave claws, put in a tomb for three days, and then get up? Not just get up, but can he pass through over 30 pounds of grave cloths? Can he go through a stone and then appear to over 500? He can if he is God. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. So the question is, Jeff Gilmore, do you know for sure that you have a relationship with God and that you are going to heaven? Yes, I know for sure. Well, Jeff, how can you be so sure? It's because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the price that he paid on the cross has paved a way for me by me putting my faith and trust not in anything I could do, but because only I fell to my knees in repentance with an impoverished spirit, knowing that my hands aren't clean. My heart isn't pure. My tongue isn't righteous and holy. I need someone, someone to take me into the presence of God. And I know that Jesus is God, and that when Jesus went through the gates, the gates were taken off. He can never be excluded from the presence of God. And he is the Lord of hosts. I am part of his armies, and I can only come in with him. Well, Jeff, are you sure you have security? How do you know you won't lose your salvation? It's because I am marching in with Jesus. He is my entry point, and the gates are off. They can't be shut. There is security there. So the question is, have you trusted this king of glory? Have you trusted the king of glory? Your works, I, I just hope you see it. By the way, this would be the most traditional kind of gospel message I could ever imagine. This is it. There's nothing you can do. There is nothing that you can bring. It's simply to the cross that you can cling. Simply to the cross you can claim. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. It's a time to remember Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, communion is for you. We're going to take the, the bread and the cup. We're going to remember Jesus, and we're going to remember that he is the only way that we can enter into the very presence of God. If, if you're here, and, and maybe, you, maybe you can more identify with the religious route. I mean, you born in a Christian family, you went to church, you went to youth group, you did all those things, you were baptized, you were confirmed, you know, all, you went through all those hoops. 
but you have never really come to God with an absolute impoverished spirit. It's time for those knees to hit the ground and say, okay, Lord, it's time for me to shed my fig leaves. I can't bring anything. It is only by grace that I can come to you. If you've never taken that step, I want to urge you, please, if this passage can't show you that, I don't know what passage can. That's the only way that you will experience uh, the presence of God. So I'll give you that opportunity to trust Christ this morning, and then we'll remember what Jesus did as we take communion together. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father, Psalm 24, shows us Jesus, and we are so glad. It's wonderful to know that you are our sovereign God, and you have put to flight all of man's religions, all of external righteousness. There is but one who has been given the keys of the city, and that one was born in Bethlehem, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, dead, buried, This one was resurrected from the grave three days later. And so, Father, we come to you by your grace. We don't come to you just short of a little change. We don't come to you just in need of a spiritual tune-up or some spiritual makeover because our hands will never be clean enough, our heart never pure enough, our tongues never holy enough. The only way we come to you is as paupers, hungering, thirsting for righteousness and you bestow that righteousness as a free gift. So I just pray, if you're here and maybe you've gone the religious route, and it's it's time, it's time for your knees to rip off the fig leaves and for your knees to hit the ground and say, Jesus, this is how I come to you now. I realize my hands will never be clean enough, my heart will never be pure enough, my mouth will never be truthful enough. I need to come based on you, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the Lord of Sabbath, Jesus, I understand that you did die on the cross for me. Thank you that you're offering salvation as a free gift, and I want to receive that by faith and and trust you that as you give me a new heart, as you change my life, my hands will become a little cleaner, my heart a little purer, and my tongue a little more holy. And I know that's going to take time. I know I'm going to struggle with it the rest of my life but thank you for the start that I can have in you. Jesus, you alone have our praise. You alone are our Redeemer. You alone have our adoration. Is there a way for us to stand confident in your holy presence? Yes, because heaven's gates are open to the Son of God. They're off the hinges. So we bless you, our Redeemer. We praise you. We adore you forever and forever because of him in whose name we pray. Amen.